0: This week's episode is sponsored by global beauty and wellness brand, The Beauty Chef. Founded in Australia by gut health expert, Carla Oates. Pioneer of the ingestible beauty category, The Beauty Chef continues to create high quality inner beauty solutions for radiant skin, gut health, immunity, and well-being. Based on the philosophy that beauty begins in the belly, The Beauty Chef combines cutting-edge research with a state-of-the-art biofermentation process to create powders and elixirs made with biofermented, probiotic-rich whole foods, which are both delicious and nutritious. To receive a site-wide 15% off code, enter TBCAthena15 at checkout on thebeautychef.com. Welcome to More Than One Thing with me, Athena Calderon, the podcast focused on non-traditional career paths, creative endeavors, and the ever-evasive multi-hyphenate. We live in a world today which encourages us to be the multifaceted humans that we are, though we're still subjected to antiquated pressures to follow a single path to success. But there is so much beauty to be found in our complexities and I want to encourage you to embrace your full self. This is a podcast about taking the road less traveled to find your passion and purpose while navigating the hurdles and hoops we all jump through on this personal and creative journey. I'm your host, Athena Calderon, author, interior designer, chef recipe developer, entertaining expert, creative director, stylist, product designer, storyteller, editor, and certified oversharer. Does that sound like an insanely long way to describe my career? Well, it is, and that's exactly why we're all here. Every week, I'll be sitting down with another multi-hyphenate who I admire deeply to talk through their struggles, vulnerabilities, And eventual successes throughout their long and winding journey to where they are now. Because it's in other stories, I believe we can always see a little piece of ourselves. Today's guest is fashion designer, author, activist, business owner, and ray of light, Aurora James. You likely know Aurora as the founder and creative director of the luxury shoe and accessory brand Brother Vellies. Partnering with artisans in Africa and around the world every step of the way, Brother Vellies prioritizes ethics, sustainability, and cultural preservation. In response to the current pandemic this summer, Aurora pivoted the business to launch the Something Special program, a monthly subscription that sends a hand-curated object directly to your mailbox, creating sustainable work for artists and communities during this especially difficult time. Aurora's designs are not only absolutely stunning, often spotted on celebs like Beyonce, she is changing the way we define a luxury brand. The CFDA thinks so too, and in 2015, Aurora was honored with the Vogue Fashion Fund Award. But beyond leading Brother Vellies, Aurora has many other facets to her career. Not to be limited to... One thing. Aurora is also the creator of the groundbreaking 15% pledge, a nonprofit urging major retailers to commit 15% of their shelves to Black-owned businesses. With companies like Yelp, Sephora, and West Elm already signed on, the pledge is affecting tangible and widespread change. Aurora's tireless work for economic equality has seen her dubbed GQ's Change Agent of the Year, and she was just featured on the cover of Vogue's legendary September issue. As if she weren't busy enough, Aurora is also in the middle of writing a memoir, adding author to her long list of hyphens. From a young age, Aurora was drawn to fashion and storytelling, which over the years manifested itself in various ways. Throughout her journey, she explored journalism, art, music, photography, and even horticulture. Today, her work as a businesswoman, creative, and advocate wind their way into each of her many pursuits, from Brother valleys to the 15% Pledge. To everything else up her sleeve, there's really only one thing that ties all together. Aurora is making sure everyone has a seat at the table. I am so excited to welcome Aurora James to more than one thing. Aurora, welcome. Athena, hi.
1: Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to be here talking to you today. What
0: a joy. I'm really excited to kind of hear about your journey because you have had quite the busy year. Footwear News and Women's Wear Daily named you Person of the Year, so congratulations. Mm, Thank you. But you seem to be one of these people that always has a lot going on. And from what I've witnessed, you are continually pivoting and you're always advocating for people that have not had the same opportunities that you have. And by design, your work bridges so many worlds. And I, I just want to hear
1: in your own words what being a multi means to you. You know, I think for me, I have always had a hard time being boxed in, you know, and I think that so often we sort of end up going through the motions in our own life. And I think really early on my dad died when i was little and i really came to understand that every single day is a blessing and i want to make sure that you know every day when i wake up i'm asking myself what do i want to do today what do i want to do with this day and how do i want to grow how do i want to push myself and what do i also want to leave as my imprint on the world if today is my last day to do so. And I don't really mean that from like a morbid standpoint, but more so just this idea of like what can we do with what can we do with the day? And so I guess that leads me to doing things that aren't always on the calendar, which I suppose is how you become a multi-hyphenate, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. So how did your kind of career unravel? I mean, I know this year, 2020, your career definitely Um, took lots of twists and turns, but how has your journey unraveled in a nonlinear way from how you might have originally imagined it when you were,
1: say, in your 20s or in college? Oh my gosh, I feel like my life its like every year is a series of unraveling, you know, Um, (laughs) which maybe is cool because sometimes it's like we build ourselves up into this like giant sweater and you need to like unravel the yarn just to get back to like the original fibers and figure out that you're a long line and you're not meant to be so bundled up into what the world tells you has a value, right? And you're actually just like a yarn ball of opportunity, like ready to be stretched out into the world. Nothing has ever gone as planned. You know, I didn't even graduate high school, which was like the most horrifying thing that one could do in my house growing up. And then when I went on to university, I'm Canadian, you know, I got kicked out. So I never got my degree, which was also really horrifying to my mom. I came to this country as an undocumented immigrant, you know, granted from Canada. So I had a certain privileges there. And it's all really, you can have the best laid plans for your life. But oftentimes, I'm so grateful that whatever I planned for myself didn't work out because in retrospect, those plans seem a little bit boring.
0: (laughs) But what about when you were deep in it, in the thick of it? How did you navigate bumps in your road? Like, Did fear not block you? Was it something that you were continually able to rebound from or um, were you hard on yourself? Can you talk a little bit about how you felt. I know you shared that your family, it was was horrified that you didn't finish university or, or high school, but what about yourself? Did you put pressures on yourself or did you carry shame about not
1: completing? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I definitely carried some shame around that for a time. And then I sort of realized that it doesn't really matter that specific, those specific things about high school and college doesn't really matter unless I'm surrounding myself with people who that's their value system for whatever reason. And I knew that if it wasn't important to me, then I'm probably not going to need to be around people who find it incredibly important either. Right. Because we have a different system of what success means. You know, I've been really deep in a lot of things because I'm a super, to know me is to know I'm a super emotional person. I'm a cancer. And so (laughs) it's like, I feel everything very deeply and I don't, Mince emotions. So if I'm sad, I'm really sad, like on the floor, inconsolable, like, you know, do I want to do this anymore? Energy, you know, smoking cigarettes, like really doing all the things that I'm like not supposed to do. But you seem to turn That that emotion into action. What I do is I say like peak pandemic, March, 2020, you know, we close the store, we close my office. All of my employees are the first people that I know to test positive for COVID nineteen, wow. and I make this promise to everyone that I'm not going to cut their pay and I'm not going to lay anyone off. Okay, very well, well said and done for a girl who has like no financing or you know started this business thirty five hundred dollars. But I was like, right. this is what my commitment is going to be, you know, because. This is, to me, you know, people are sick. They're the women who work for me. Like, I want to make sure that the last thing that they're thinking about is their job when they're in the fight of their lives to get better. Because at this point, we did not know anyone who had, firsthand anyways, who had survived the coronavirus. It was all just, like, these other accounts from, from China or wherever. So March, very bad. I'm worried about them. And, like, our sales are just, like, plummeting. Like, everything that can go bad at the company is, like, going bad, as you could imagine, right? It's a pandemic. So I'm like, oh wow, I'm going to lose everything, you know? Oof. Yeah. I really, I'm like, I'm I guess I'm not going to be able to pay my rent. I'm not going to be able to do anything real. Like, it's all out the window. And it was really scary, you know, and I was like counting everything that I had and I was like okay you know I needed to keep paying people I need to keep paying our part time so I really need to keep paying everyone and and I set up this section on our website called the bodega Athena and I did it because I was like I'm going to have to start selling everything in my home wow to pay for all these things that I'm going to have to pay for it, Cause I probably not going to have anything anymore, but how clever,
0: I mean, you just rebounded, you found a way to make it work rather than throwing in the towel, rather than giving up, rather than sitting there crying and smoking cigarettes. Like you had this, you know, clever way to pivot and, find a way to survive.
1: Yeah, I mean I guess so. I think that at that time I was like preparing for the floor that you can't fall below cuz I was like it's about <laughs> to get really bad. You know what I yeah. mean? Like yeah. uh, really bad and thank god that it's just me and I don't have like a family that I'm supposed to care for. That was like how I was thinking about it at the time. Yeah. Where the clever part was 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 I was able to say okay, what do I have? You know, after like a few weeks I was like okay, what do I have? I have an online community of women who are in the exact same situation as me. You know, we are all at home. We are all saying goodbye to the dreams that we had for this year, or at least for the next few months. Mm-hmm. Some of us are sick. We are at home. I also have this whole like artisan network of people who've been working on Brother Vellies, my, my, accessories brand for a number of years. And they are supply chain is disrupted and all of our orders are canceled and I have no work to give them. And I don't know what the future looks like. And our company has no money and no one's buying shoes and bags (laughs) during a global pandemic. It's just not a thing. So what I then did was I was like, okay, how can I make something happen with what I have? And that was when I created that program that we have called something special, which is artisan made home goods. That's a monthly subscription. And that was like the light bulb moment because I was like, okay, now I can give something to all of these women who are at home, just like me and use it as an opportunity to keep our artisan community employed and ensure that I have like overhead enough to support my team without having to like, try to ask my customers to buy shoes that they're not able to wear outside right now. But I want to unpack this a little bit
0: because you're panicked, you are in a state of, I'm sure, sadness and shock of what's happening in the world, what's happening to your business. And you come up with this completely new division of your business and a subscription model. So I love that you did this amongst so much chaos. And I just, I kind of want to break down a little bit, like, how did you figure that out? You know, you were already trying to save one business and you're starting a new one with a completely different business model. So I think it's really interesting for people to learn Like, how did you do that?
1: How did you research it? How did you build
0: the site? How did you build the infrastructure?
1: Right. My first thing was conquering that fear, right? Because it's like, you know, what you don't do as a luxury brand is create a subscription model. Hermes is like not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But you're not a rule follower? No, I'm not a rule follower. So I was like what's the worst thing that can happen? Okay, the worst thing that can happen is I do nothing and end up in a situation where I can't support my team in the way that I need to support my team and, and I can't support the artisans and, and you know and then I, I go out of business and you know I can't support anyone. But the brass tacks of how do they do it? Well, it started with like this one coffee mug that, um, one of our artisans in Oaxaca had made for me and I just WhatsApped her, and I was like, look, like how many of these do you think you could make? And she was like five a day, maybe seven. And I was like, okay, cool. Just start now and make them every day. And I'm going to buy those from you. Mm -hmm. And then I called my web guy and he was like, yes, we can do that. We can set that up. It'll probably take two days. And then I was just like putting it out there and being like, okay, I don't know if a hundred people are going to subscribe to this. I don't know what's going to happen with this, but all I can do is try. Yeah. The failure comes in not trying, right? It certainly does.
0: It certainly does. But for, you know, for certain people, failure stops them in their tracks. And for other people, it propels them to get really Creative and to fight. And from what I know about you, you are a fighter and you fight not only for yourself and for your company, but for other people to have opportunities. And I think that that is why you are being honored in so many amazing ways. So this happened. You built the subscription model, it's starting to work. And then George Floyd happens. And I mean, I, I have a quote here that said, after the killing of George Floyd, I felt this deep sense of disappointment in my soul. And it felt familiar because many of the disappointments I've experienced in the past happened because I was too nervous, too shy, or too insecure to ask for what I needed. Mm. I mean, that is powerful. How did you start the um, 15% pledge
1: So funny because I haven't read that in a long time and it like makes me emotional just even reading that over because you know when I wrote that it was like so raw and so honest and so accurate and the thing with the pandemic is that that was the first time that I'd ever been really alone. I always had family around when I was younger and then I had roommates or a boyfriend you know my whole life that I lived with literally my whole life and I had parted ways with my ex like a year, it was like a year and a half ago or something. So, but I was traveling. So that was my first time living alone as an adult. And I was traveling so much that I was never really alone. Like I would be home for like two, three, four days, you know what I mean? And then I would have to be traveling again for work. And so the pandemic was the first time that I ever really had to live alone and be alone and sit in that. Mm. And in January, I had went away to this place called Hoffman, where you do a lot of like meditation and personal work and that sort of thing. And I, during the beginning of the pandemic was just ruminating on a lot of my life and a lot of like my biggest disappointments at times in life. And I realized that the people that disappointed me the most, oftentimes maybe weren't ever even sure of what I needed because I was always too afraid to ask. And Over the course of the pandemic, I had just sort of decided like, okay, I'm going to really use this as a cocooning. I'm going to do like flower arrangements when I can. I'm going to practice so much self care. I'm going to like protect my spirit. I'm going to do all these things. And when George Floyd was murdered, I was like I don't need to comment on this publicly. Everyone knows how I feel about it. I don't need to comment on this. I need to protect myself. The last thing I need to do is like get involved in the emotional melee of like how this whole thing plays out,
0: you know? It takes a lot of inner strength.
1: Yeah, I was not trying to engage. I was doing all these flower arrangements during the beginning of the pandemic and there's this like one flower arrangement that I was doing one night on Instagram stories and it's just like all of these sirens start going by my door and then a protest goes by my door and you can like see and hear all of this in the background of me like trying to do this floral arrangement and I was just like I can't ignore this and Mm. I can't not be who I am or address how I'm feeling or stand up in this situation. And the next day I was talking to a friend and she was like, you know, people are really being hard on target. Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're having this whole conversation about target. I was like, look, you know, I'm sick of these companies saying that they stand with black people or they support black people. Like they don't, you know? And she was like, well, what would that look like to you? And I was like, it would look like real equity. Like it would look like supporting them in the way that they, they, are good at actually supporting people not just like putting a black model in a campaign you know right target spends hundreds of millions of dollars buying products from companies all over the world most of which are made in china or wherever and like actually if they purchase products from like small businesses across America and or small black owned businesses across America, it would be a game changer for the black community. And I was like, you know, black people are roughly 15% of the population in America. Major retailers should commit to buying 15% of the products from black owned businesses, period. That's what support looks like for a company like that. That is what I want them to do.
0: And that came out of your mouth, just like that from a conversation.
1: Just like, like it was that. Good. Wow. <laughs> and You know, that video that I posted where I'm talking to you about the flower arrangements and the sirens, that was like on the Friday night and the Saturday afternoon, I had that conversation. And then just as soon as I got off the phone with that combo, I wrote it down on my notes on my phone. And that is what I screenshot and posted. As soon as I wrote it down, I screenshot and I posted it on Instagram. And that is the post that launched the 15% pledge inadvertently.
0: Wow. So describe to our listeners what the 15% pledge has become.
1: So the 15% pledge is now a nonprofit advocacy organization supporting Black businesses, Black entrepreneurs, Black future founders, and Black students across America in the fight for racial equity. And basically our main call to action is that retailers and corporations commit 15% of their purchasing power to black-owned businesses and or black individuals, uh, for the goal of economic equality in America. How did you? I know that you posted on
0: Instagram, and I know that you asked your community to reach out to anyone that they know. But a lot of times, people have uh, amazing ideas, and they try to get them off the ground. But this really took off, and you, of course, were at the helm
1: of that. But like how, how how did you make it happen <laughs> you're like but how <laughs> yeah everyone's like how so i posted it okay i posted it and then i put my phone down and I made dinner. And then the next day, you know, I, people were trying to text me like, oh, that's such a good idea. Like blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, well, yeah, but like people should just do it. You know, look, I had been writing Instagram captions for like three days. You know, my friends were like, how do I, how do I talk about this? How do I do this? Is this okay? Can you read this before I post it? Like no one knew what to do, you know? Yeah. And I was like, look, like this is what I want. You know, it's about putting that ask out. And I needed to put out that ask, a clear ask, and give these companies the opportunity to either meet me with my ask or disappoint me. But I at least wanted to be clear about making the ask. The next day, my web guy, his name is Ben Rab, (laughs) the same one that helps me set up the subscription model on my website. He was like, do you want to create a website for this? And I was like, yes, I do. And so we stayed up overnight on Sunday night to create a website. I was like, let's have a petition. And he did that for me overnight. We had it launched by that Monday at noon. And I had a bunch of friends who were texting me. that were like, this is a great idea. How can we support it? You know, what can we do? And so I put them on a group chat. So it was like me, it was Sophia Amoruso. It was Rebecca Minkoff. It was Janae Lombardo. It was Rochelle Haruska. It was Selby Drummond. Okay. That was the original, like, Charlie's Angels. And Sophia was like, I need to introduce you to this guy. His name is James Higa. He worked with Steve Jobs for 25 years. He helped me at the Girl Boss Foundation. You need to accept donations so that we have money to go after these companies and make sure to take the pledge. You know what I mean? Like, everyone, I was like, yes. We were just had like big women like let's go do this energy you know like yeah. we have an ask like let's make sure that people respond to us whether it's a yes or a no let's get an answer because to some degrees as well it's like so much is put on us as consumers and as women to fix the problem when in reality you know when it comes to economic justice when it comes to climate change these are corporations that are responsible for a lot of this debt and so that was the, that was the original group of women that like really helped me get the pledge off of the ground. And by day 10, Sephora became the first company to commit to the pledge. And, you know, for the record, cause people are like, but how? So digging into the, <laughs> but how it was like, you know, I got an email from someone that I knew at Sephora and they were like, Aurora, you know, like you tagged us in this thing. Like, can we schedule a call? So I get oh, Yeah, I'm, but talk about that. You started calling out brands. You started oh tagging yeah, tagging everyone that I wanted to take, Which, if you know me, is like not how Same I operate. Bold. Yeah, like that is not how I operate. I'm Canadian. I'm usually like very diplomatic, very democratic. Like <laughs> we are not tagging people. We are not making a scene. You know, like I will speak out of, about things, but I'm not gonna like tag. That is just like not a thing that I do. But you
0: know what? This was linked to something that was deeply rooted within you, not asking for what you needed. So in a way you are being like the godmother of like everyone that is not asking for what they need.
1: Right. And you know what? And also doesn't have the platform to ask because at this point, you know, I had launched something special and our community, our Brother Valley's community had responded and they gave me the financial security to make sure that my staff was covered. They gave me the opportunity to launch the pledge by subscribing to something special because I knew that I had not a lot, but just what we all needed to be okay for the next six, eight months, however long. And you so, saw people showing up. Yes, I did. And so I needed to show up for them and I needed to advocate for them. It's the same thing where people were like, oh my God, like you get in a lot of slack for supporting Planned Parenthood. Well, yeah, but like I have to support Planned Parenthood because Planned Parenthood supports so many women and women are my customers, right? So I need to show up. So what are you going to do with the platform, right? So, you know, the companies that I tagged, like, I take shop you know, I already sold there with Brother Belly. Same, Metaporte already had a relationship. Sephora already had a relationship. Like these were personal a- relationships for the most part that I was kind of like alienating and holding to task.
0: Yeah. Were you advised not to do that, that it would damage your career as a designer?
1: yes, my phone rang as soon as I posted that. And it was like, um, maybe you should reconsider. Um, you know, (laughs) and I was like, oh, I did it already. It's done, you know, woman (laughs) on a mission. There's nothing we can do now. It's already out there in the world, you know, it's up to them. And Sephora was the first, the first company to, you know, reach out. And they were like, we, we, we saw what you posted, like, you know, let's talk about it. And so we talked about it. And, you know, I was like, this is what I'm thinking. This is what it would look like. And then we got off the phone and then it was day 10 and they came back to me and they were like, we are ready to commit and we are ready to do this. And we're ready to do it in a meaningful way in collaboration and partnership with you. And, you know, we, we are going to hit this 15% goal. And did they, were they willing to put the work in or were they asking you for help? They're very willing to put the work in. They're asking for guidance you know, which I yeah. actually think is important because, you know, in Sephora, they're like very ahead of the curve. They're a really model student, you know, but there's a lot of companies out there, especially ones that haven't taken the pledge that actually don't know how to even begin to do something like this. Did you get any negative responses? Like
0: how dare you?
1: Or yes. Did people negative. just
0: go silent that they didn't, if they didn't yes. want to pledge, did they just go silent?
1: <laughs> yes. There are today, there's still some people that we have never heard from, you know, Whole Foods. Right. And it's like, you know, a real bummer because black farmers across this country are losing their land at a really rapid rate. And 42% of black owned businesses are closing as a result of the pandemic in comparison to what they estimate is 18 to 20% of white owned businesses. So it's not a casual discrepancy. And, you know, when I first put that 15% number together, to be honest, Athena, I thought that most of these companies would probably be around 7 or 8% in their representation. But as we started digging into it, what we found out is that the majority of companies are kind of in the 1% to 2% in oh, terms of their that's representation. Astounding. Yeah. We found some people that were at 0%, and the highest of anyone that we've seen was 4%. Oh my goodness. I want to talk a little bit
0: about, so you're a designer. Obviously, you're an activist. We've touched upon those two things. But throughout your journey, you've also explored journalism and art and music and photography and horticulture. Did you just allow yourself to dive into any creative realm that captured your interest? Yeah. Or were you trying to figure out who
1: you were? I mean, I think I I do really know who I am for the most part, but I'm always open to learning and I'm always opening to listening to people who want to tell me who they think I am. (laughs) You know, you got to be open to it, but you also have to be willing to be like, no, that's not accurate, but um, you always (laughs) have to listen. So, I mean, I love to dabble with like all things, all things creative and all things like business related as well you know i need a lot of different stimulation because i think that's who i am and you know all of these projects like be it brother valleys be it the 15% pledge you know they do have a similar narrative right because it's about you know empowering People who are often forgotten or often used as creative inspirations, but not necessarily involved in the financial equation of things. Yeah. It's definitely the case for, you know, the artisans and communities that we worked with in Africa and still work with at Brother Vellies and uh, across the world, actually, now. So we work with artisans in so many different countries. But can
0: you talk a little bit about how Brother Vellies began? I, I know it began after a trip to Africa.
1: Yeah. I was traveling in Africa. My father was born and raised in Ghana. And um, when I was in my 20s, I was able to start visiting Africa a little bit. And I was really shocked because my mom always raised me with a deep appreciation for fashion, but really from a cultural identity and like historical narrative. And you know, I was expecting to see people in some of their like traditional cultural apparel. And when I got there, they were like, no, they're wearing like J brand jeans and uh, like Von Dutch hats. I'm not joking. And, and I was like, Whoa, what's going on? You know, and I realized that that sort of like Western, you know, fashion sense was really what they wanted to aspire to. And in the process, you know, a lot of the traditional artisan work was, being left behind because there was no market for it. And on top of that, you know, American donated clothing had actually killed the vast majority of the local manufacturing, which was heartbreaking because it was a yeah. classic case of, you know, people wanting to do the right thing. It's like, you think if you go somewhere and you donate a thousand pairs of shoes, you think you're doing good. But in reality, you know, the local cobblers just all went out of business and, you know, that's a little bit tough. So I just started seeking out workshops there that were making like traditional things just to try to like find out what the deal was. Not because I was like, I want to launch a shoe brand, you know, and, um, I really fell in love with, um, a couple of the workshops in South Africa and Namibia and, um, started working first on what's called a velly. It was the original shoe that I made, which is a short form. It's felly. So short form for the word fellscoon, which Translates to field shoe, and it was sort of the original desert boot. And when British people had come to southern Africa and saw the shoe, they brought it back up and they created this company called Clark's and they renamed it the Desert Boot. But it's a traditional African shoe called a velly, which is what my company is based on. And um, mm. I worked with them and tweaked that shoe a little bit and, you know, changed some colors and did a thing and brought them back to the Lower East Side and set up a booth and sold them at the Hester Street Fair. And that was how Brother Velly's was born.
0: Unreal. And you had no background in building a business and you had $3,500. Mm-hmm. You didn't know what you were doing and you just dove in.
1: Yeah. I was like, I wasn't even, at that time, I wasn't even like, oh, I'm creating a business. I was like, oh, I'm going to sell these shoes for these guys so that they have an income. I had bought them from them already. But then when I sold them, it took that money and then I bought more shoes.
0: It's so fascinating, though, that every single one of the ventures that we've already talked about were all born out of you filling a void for people not being treated fairly. You just go after what you feel is when people are not being treated fairly. And I'd love for you to just talk about where do you think that stems
1: from? You're right about the theme of those, right? And the other theme of those two initiatives is that they both happen really quickly. And I think that when we're acting on behalf of others, we're more brave, yeah, And I think, you know, so often we're like, we're, we think about starting a company or, you know, having our second act in life. We're, we're really hum and ha and we're like, well, maybe I should think about this differently. Maybe I need to do this. I need to do this first. I need to like, you know, get my this first and then and find that like all these things. We like make up this whole huge to do list for ourselves. that's like almost insurmountable and basically stifling. And we never get to do what we want to do. But when we're acting on behalf of other people, like think about when you're doing something to advocate for your child, you know, like you're Mm -hmm. doing that right now. You're not letting anything get in the way. You are doing it right now. And so maybe that's actually what the world needs. Maybe we need to be starting more companies or going after our passions that are about not just self-fulfillment, but also advocacy for other people, for our planet, for like anything that needs it, that's more um, disenfranchised or doesn't have a voice because maybe that's how we get the job done.
0: Was this something that was instilled in you as a child or something maybe that was born within you when you moved to New York? I'm just so curious because you are a woman on a mission. (laughs) It's like really inspiring.
1: I mean, look, I'm not always on a mission. Sometimes I'm just like trying to lay on the couch and like drown out the entire world. But, (laughs) and I also encourage that, but you know, my grandmother was always, she, you know, she always raised me to be like, I had all these pen pals when I was younger, which were all of these children that she sponsored in Africa. And she would be like, I want you to write to each of them all the time. So you can understand that you guys are all the same. You're just born into different circumstances. And so I think I had like that understanding really early on and a keen understanding of my own privilege, you know, and that I was getting to do these things that these other children may never get to do. And so what am I going to do with that? Because really, it was luck and there's not. I'm not a huge believer in luck. I'm a believer in like hard work and timing to degree to, to a lot of its work. I think as women were always like, I was lucky. No, no, you work twice as hard. But huh. when it comes to where you're born in the world and what situation you're born into, I mean, that's lucky, you know? So I think I've always, you know, been like, what am I going to do with that?
0: Yeah. So I want to read another quote that I would love for you to kind of expand upon if you're willing to. And I know that it has something to do with the memoir that you're writing, which I cannot wait to read. But you said, I've found my light after crawling through some of life's darkest places. It would be a disservice to you if I did not write this down. For me to keep on going without telling you that I discovered my hope on the floor of a jail cell or that I learned how to love so hard only after I learned how to leave. It would be unfair for me to post only my highlights reel without sharing the rolls of uncut film on the cutting floor room because that's where the magic is. I mean, holy shit. Like, <laughs> I cannot wait to read your memoir, but were you able to see that it was the magic when you were going through it? Can you talk about some of those dark places and how you overcame the darkness or how you saw the light in the dark?
1: Yeah. I always knew, and I still know now, you know, I always sort of viewed my life and this sounds crazy or like weird, but like, you know, I always sort of viewed my life as like a little bit like it was going to be a movie, you know? And so I always felt like when the bad things were happening, I was like, this is just the bad that has to happen before the really good comes. I always had this theory that like from sadness to happiness, we all sort of exist from like a one to 10 scale, right? One is like sad, 10 is peak happy, right? And the pendulum swings both ways. So like only as extreme as your sadness can be is as extreme as your happiness can be. So sometimes it was like the further that I could find myself in the sadness, I would also be optimistic knowing that like, eventually the pendulum is gonna swing the other way as a law of nature, and I was going to be blissfully happy. Really positive. <laughs> <And, laughs> no, but I think to some degree, I don't know, I just think that's I just think that's how, how it works. It's just like how long are you, you know, maybe that bliss happens like in the very last moment of life if you try to hold out on one end for too long and not let yourself be free and find the happiness of exactly where you're at. You know, mm. you have to be free where you are. But, you know, yeah, I mean, there was really low... Low moments. I, you know, was arrested one time for dangerous driving. It was like, you know, it was like not trying to pull over a car. I mean, it was crazy. You know, it was really. I Am I 18? And you know this, Athena, I mean, I've seen pictures of you in the club, like, sometimes, (laughs) like, when we're younger, like, you know, you really go through it at different points, you try to find yourself in all sorts of places, whether it's a dance floor, or whether it's, you know, in the arms of someone that you shouldn't actually have ever, you know, responded to in the first place, or uh, in some foreign country where you're like, oh my God, how did I get here? You know, and how do I get home? I think I've made a long series of questionable choices, but it's all been like, you know, I guess laying the way for the journey that's going to get me to exactly where I am, which is here right now. And I think to some degree, I mean, my dad died when I was little. My mom is an incredibly unconventional parent. You know, God love her. She's really brilliant, but she's not the one to go to for like comfort per se. Yeah, but maybe Aurora, this is really telling of how you've become such a fighter. No, it's true. And she has always been a person. Like, I very vividly remember one time when I was like, Oh, mom, would you mind bringing me over a chair? She was like, Sorry, what? And I was like, Would you mind bringing me over like, you know, one of those chairs? And she was like, What's a chair? And I was like, What do you mean what's chair? Like that is you know, and she was like, Oh, is that what you believe to be a chair? She's like, How do you define a chair? Did the person who designed that object intend for it to be a chair, or are you just interpreting it as a chair? She's getting you to think. Yes. She really taught me about critical thinking and perception and reframing the way that we look at things, and that there are many different ways to look at a chair. Like, you know, that's a wood-bonded object, like You might see it as a chair. I might see it as an installation piece. Like we all have different ways to look at the world. How do we communicate so that we can have the same desired outcome and be on the same page? She taught me a lot about communication.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love these repeated themes that happen in your life. Mm. I ask everyone that comes on the podcast about the greatest hurdle that they faced as they navigated their career journey and their personal journey, because we all have challenges, we all have roadblocks and fears, but to me, it's how you get through them and what you learn from them. So if you had to pinpoint one significant hurdle that you've had to overcome, what would it be?
1: Well, if I'm really honest, I would say I'm over trying to overcome a hurdle right now, which is like coming to terms with aging and life passing by. Was that always a fear or is it
0: the specific point in your life?
1: No, it's just now because I'm starting to like, see my, and granted, like I'm still very young, right. I'm 36, but like, I'm starting to see myself like age in a certain way. And people around me are starting to get worried about like whether I'm having children or whether I've frozen my eggs and like all of this jazz. Right. And you know, that part feels like a lot of pressure and it's like, oh wow. Like you've lived your life, like trying to have fun, trying to like do things in a different way and see the world and see the world in a different way. And like, you know, you do all this and you kick up a storm and you make beautiful things. And then before you know it, you turn around and like the years are passing by. And then at a certain point you're like, wait, I have less life left. And then at a certain point, you're like, wait, we never really know how much life we have no matter what. So all that to say, like, (laughs) Right now, I think I'm really, and as I've like started working on writing this memoir, it's like, okay, all of this has happened and like to what end, you know, and, and what else and how will it end? And what are the things that I need to make absolutely certain that I do with this next chapter of my life? And I don't know, like, you know, someone asked me the other day, if you weren't doing the things that you were doing right now, if like, money wasn't an option. If any, if you could just be anything that you want to be like, what would it be? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It's not funny, but it's funny in that people ask me often like, okay, so what's, what's next for you? Where do you want life to take you? What's your five-year plan? And I've always said, I don't know. I've always just trusted my instincts, trusted my intuition, and just kind of allowed things to unravel and take me on a bit of a ride, a bumpy ride at times, but a ride. And sometimes I'm like, I need to figure out what that five-year plan is. And then another part of me, and it sounds maybe similar to you, is that maybe you don't always have a plan. And maybe... That's part of being a creative, and that's part of being an activist, and that's part of just seeing where life is going to take you and applying yourself to the areas that you see fit at that time.
1: Right. And that's okay. Totally. It is okay. Because you're doing amazing work. Yeah. It's scary. It's scary. Mm Because I'm doing amazing work from my apartment. You know, it's also the whole thing. It's like we're all at home we're all in our apartments. And honestly, when I say that, it's just ab. like everyone should eye roll because I'm very comfortable and like I have a bunch of plants and like all that jazz and I'm good and I have, you know, a partner and all of that lovely things. But yeah, I mean, there's just like so much world still and there's so many people that like need still And also like our world needs a big giant bandage. And that's been a thing where like for the past four years, I haven't been able to even like talk about climate change because people are like, are you kidding me? Like there's like other immediately imminent dangers and threats that are happening around us right now. Like children are being torn away from their parents at the border. Like why are we talking about fracking? It's super valid. There's this part that I was like writing about in my book when I was a kid and I was living in Jamaica and I was like, out swimming in the ocean by myself. And I was like looking up at the sky and it looked almost like shades of apricot, you know, and the sun was like so brilliant and vibrant and beautiful. And then I thought about all of the things that were existing under that sun that were like, you know, in pain right now and weren't able to like see the beauty in the way that like I could see it in that moment. And I just started feeling so many different feelings it really overwhelmed me. And I just went under the water, you know, Mm. and I don't remember anything else for like three more days. Because sometimes the world like in all of its like beauty and in all of its crisis, is just so much and too much and like not enough all at the same time. Those are some big thoughts to have for a young person. (laughs) Yeah. I think young people have a lot of big thoughts. I think they just don't have the communication tools always to express them. And we don't take them as seriously. Yeah. So
0: from a young age, we're constantly being asked what we want to be when we grow up. Did you ever feel insecure about answering that question? What do you want to be or what do you want to do?
1: A lot of times I would just give people the answers that I knew they wanted to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Marine biologist, you know, oh lawyer, <laughs> doctor, teacher, like whatever. Like I was like, oh, this person like needs me to define myself right now. Okay. What do they need here?
0: That's amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Just
0: tell people what they want to hear and get them off your back. Totally. Cause people are looking for you
1: <laughs> to define yourself so early on, you know, it's so unfair. It's just unfair. It's so unfair and absolutely unrealistic. And then we end up in a situation sometimes where we define ourselves too prematurely. And then what happened? We end up in that box that I mentioned to you in the beginning of this convo.
0: Yeah. Oh goodness can you share a specific moment when you finally felt as though you were either embraced by yourself or embraced by uh, people like your community for taking an unconventional career choice? Like when did you stand in I am instead of am I with a question mark?
1: Ooh, I know that being a designer, it seems unconventional, but in some ways I would say it's conventional because it's like, People are like, oh, like you're not like not that crazy, but I think the pledge. I think that that is non-conventional. It's easier to not tag all these people. It's easier to. I mean, I spent the entire summer on my phone and Zoom calls, mainly booked in fifteen-minute increments of time every day, and I there. You know, it was very few days, if I'm honest with you, there are very few days in the summer that I didn't throw up from like the emotional hurdles and labors of, of that process, because for every one of these companies that have committed to taking the pledge, and there's a dozen as of today, you know, the work that's involved in that, and there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of fear in that topic. But I think really getting through some of this work and continuing to do this work, I have felt... Like, people have appreciated it and understand the value of it. And, you know, not everyone, but a lot of people. And it's touching people in very real ways because there's a lot of small business owners that write me every day. And they're like, oh, my God, you're never going to believe it. You know, (laughs) like, blah, 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 company reached out to me. And they're just, like, over the moon. And I'm like, that's very real, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: That's a real person who put themselves out on a limb to start a business and whose dreams are like starting to come true now because you know this company committed to taking the pledge and is taking a meeting with them and buying their products when otherwise they would have just continued buying you know whatever thing that like whatever huge company pushed at them yeah because it probably wasn't even on their radar like at it was all. not that was not that's the whole thing it just hasn't been on people's radars people haven't known where to look because they're like well I don't there's not you know, there's not, these people aren't coming to us. And it's like, no one has your email. (laughs) Like there are so many gatekeepers. People don't realize that. Like there are so many gatekeepers. It's not that, and people are like, this is some, when people criticize the pledge, sometimes they'll say, you know, this is stupid. Companies should be buying the best products, not just products because they're made by black people. And I'm like, no, companies should absolutely be buying the best products in America. And what we need to realize is that a lot of the best products in America have not been given an opportunity to even be seen because the yeah. channels and the access have not been available to those entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah. I mean, can we just talk about the September Vogue cover? Mm. And I mean, what a moment. And I love that you shared that it meant so much to you not because uh, you weren't on the cover because of how you looked or how your business performed. It was about how hard you were willing to fight for something that you believed in.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there was a really amazing four letter word on the cover with me, which was hope. And I really Mm. believe that hope isn't just about a state of mind. It's about a state of being and doing, you know, it's activating around something that is hopeful and what being in a space of hope means. And, you know, that was really important to me to, you know, represent that for some people during a year that was so traumatic for everyone.
0: You are one inspiring lady. Thank you so much. I want to, in closing, just ask, what's next? Are there any career pursuits or paths? That you're hoping to explore or goals or collaborations that you want to share?
1: Oh my gosh, well, I really need to write this book. <laughs> and I started. <laughs> I know how hard it. That <laughs> is. Right. I've started it and it's like, wow, I didn't know it would be so hard to write a book when you're, you know, running a company and a nonprofit at the same time. And apparently it's a little bit of a challenge. But yeah, I'm so excited to be able to sort of share my story, because it is really unconventional. And I think there are things that happened along the way. And for so many of us, we just feel like, you know, we've blown it or we don't have all the things that you need to have in order to be successful, you know, and none of that is true. And I think my story is a real testament to that. So I think that getting that out into the world is is a really important project for me.
0: I cannot wait to read it. And I am so grateful for your wisdom and your perseverance and your activism and your creativity and your heart. So thank you for sharing it with us and our
1: listeners. Thank you so much for having me, Athena. It was a pleasure. Always is to talk to you. That
0: was Aurora James, fashion designer, humanitarian, community builder, and bona fide ray of light. Thanks for tuning in to More Than One Thing. Stay tuned for new episodes on Wednesdays, and be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening now. If you enjoyed today's show, I would be so grateful if you could take a moment to rate and review us. And I'd also love your feedback. Which multi-hyphenates would you like to hear on the show? Send guest suggestions or any other feedback to morethanonethingpodcast at gmail.com. And be sure to check us out on our newly launched Instagram account, More Than One Thing Podcast. And you can find me personally on social at iSwoon. If you would like to receive the More Than One Thing newsletter, please head over to i-swoon.com and sign up for the newsletter. I'm Athena Calderon, and you've been listening to More Than One Thing.